First United Methodist Church, Heaper Springs, Arkansas. Today is Palm Sunday, March the 20th, 2016. We have two readings today. Please stand for this morning's scripture reading. The scripture reading for today's message comes from the book of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, just say this, The Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds and power that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The word of God for the people of God. Please stand as we read the Passion Sunday Scripture reading. It's a long reading, so if anyone feels like they need to sit down during the reading, please feel free to, and don't lock your knees so we don't have anybody paying you and passing out. <laughs> when the hour came, he took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me, and his hand is on the table. For the Son of God is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then he began to ask, they began to ask one another which one of them it could be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must be like the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my father has conferred on me, a kingdom, 
so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, listen. Satan has demanded to sift all of you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your own faith may not fail and you, when once you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the cock will not crow this day until you have denied three times that you know me. He said to them, when I sent you out without a purse, bag, or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, no, not a thing. He said to them, but now the one who has a purse must take it, and likewise a bag. And the one who has no sword must sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was counted among the lawless. And indeed, what is written about me is being fulfilled. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. He said, it is enough. He came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. When he reached the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not come to the time of trial. Then he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down. And prayed. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel from heaven appeared to him and gave him strength. In his anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became as great blood, as great drops of blood falling down on the ground. When he got up from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping because of grief. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. While he was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came and the one called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying, betraying the Son of Man? When those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed it. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officers of the temple police, and the elders who had come for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were abandoned? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was following at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter said among them, then a servant girl seeing him in the firelight stared at him and said, this man also was with him, but he denied it saying, woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, you're also one of them, but Peter said, man, I am not. <clears throat> then about an hour later, yet another kept insisting, surely this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And at that moment, 
While he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus began to mock him and beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is it that struck you? They kept heaping many other insults on him. When day came, the assembly of the elders and the people, both chief, and, both chief priests and scribes, gathered together, and they brought him to their council. They said, if you are the Messiah, tell us. He replied, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I question you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. All of them asked, are you then the Son of God? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And all of God's people said, amen. Whether you realize it or not, Dennis has took us all the way through Holy Week, so that's a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and we've got a lot of ground to cover, too, so we want to get right to it. But we've got till 1230, because we've got another hour, because church council doesn't start for another hour. So we're okay. Don't, don't worry about it. So we'll keep you that long. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and let's uh, turn our hearts towards his word and what he would have us to hear today. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, this sermon is entitled, Represent. And we're continuing in that theme of re-lent. So we've talked about repenting, we've talked about all these other re-words, but this one is re-present or represent. But before we dig into the scripture, this is a lot of text. We want to know a little bit about the author and what he's up to. So as we look at the book of Luke, we've got to know a little bit about him. Now Luke is the only New Testament author who was a Gentile. The only one that we know of. There's some books of the New Testament that we're not exactly sure who the authors were. But Luke is the only one that we know of, of all the ones that we know the author, who is a Gentile, which is a really interesting perspective. Luke was a physician, and Luke was also a historian, which paints a, a picture for you for why he goes into all these details and why he is so precise, and, and his, the Greek and, that he wrote his letters in was, is very accurate. The Greek uh, is, is really beautiful language where Paul, I'm sorry, where uh, Paul is, is uh, uh, oftentimes abstract, and it's almost kind of like you're going in a circle and then in a circle, and then John is very poetic where you look at, the, look, at the pro, look at a poem or something like that. Luke is very exact and precise. And what other book did Luke write? Does anybody know? Acts, exactly. Luke and Acts are kind of like volume one and volume two. And he starts, Luke starts out the book that even, he even says, I wanted to give an accurate account. He sees that right at the start. It's important for him to give an accurate account of all these things that happened when Jesus was on the earth. He was good friends with Paul, 
And he, he went on that journey. In fact, he's listed uh, a few times in the, in the history of the early church. And this book is written around 60 A.D., so that is about 30 years after Jesus' death, but it's about 10 years before the diaspora and before uh, the temple is destroyed and all of the Jews are scattered from Jerusalem by the, by the Roman armies and the Roman rulers. But the thing that's important to study and understand, too, about Luke is he consistently wants to present Jesus as fully human, but fully God. So you'll see him oftentimes refer son of man and the son of God. And you'll see him go through that process again and again and again so that he presents to his predominantly Gentile audience, himself being a Gentile, what that means, that God can be fully human, and I'm sorry, that Jesus can be fully human and fully God at the same time. So that should help us to frame a little bit of what we're hearing and understanding today. But as we walk through this, and as we even got to hear the chapter 19 recount of the triumphal entry, we see that Jesus was presented in various ways. And the first way in our first scripture reading, the way we see him presented is as a king. We see him presented as a king that even though he rode in on a colt, the people recognized, now if you know real closely what was in that scripture text, why were they out there? It wasn't because of the teachings of Jesus. It wasn't because of, uh, of the fact that they thought he was the Messiah. It was because of the miracles he had performed. So the, the crowd formed and started laying out the palm branches and, and the, um, their coats, coats or cloaks or their, you know, their primary garment out there as a show of reverence, and that's what they would have done. But here he is on a colt, you know, and the anthem was, where's his chariot? Where's his scepter? Where's his crown or his robe of silk and, and, and those things? And here he is on this lowly beast of burden, as some people would call it. But the people are shouting in excitement. They're shouting in excitement because here finally is this guy, this candidate, who's going to fix this system where we're broken and oppressed by pagan rulers. And we're going to return to the good old days like when King David and King Solomon, we're going to get back to the place where we were running the, running the world and, and, and where we were back in control and not being oppressed like we are right now. So they have this kind of singular perspective of Jesus as a king. Now, a few things worth noting that are really quite interesting. Now, what do we normally say when, uh, when, you go to, when, when we're at a Palm Sunday service? And it's that H word that you don't hear very often. Hosanna, Hosanna with the palm branches we wave those. Well, notice that's, that's missing. That word is not in Luke's account at all. And if you look side by side at the four different gospel accounts of the triumphal entry, Luke's has some really interesting things. And Sometimes if you're really not careful, you'll miss it. You'll walk right past it, and here's this beautiful little flower uh, that's just popping up out of the soil. Well, here's one of those. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Now, what does Luke unpack in Luke chapter 2? The birth of Jesus, right? He tells the story, and what do the angels say? when they proclaim Jesus' birth. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's normally what we say, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men, whether that was exactly it or not, but that's what we say. Peace on earth. The angels who ushered in Jesus as a little human being 
as God incarnate among us, say, peace on earth. Now, what do we hear? As the triumphal entry ushers Jesus into this transformation of Jesus the King, peace in heaven. And Luke uses these words to connect those two places. So not only is he this little baby born in a human body, just like you and I, peace on earth. He is beginning this journey to become the God of both heaven and earth, the one who is victorious over death. But that triumphal entry introduces him, and he says, peace in heaven and peace on earth, almost like two little bookends as we see Jesus being born and being ushered in as a king. Erkomenos is the Greek word that Luke uses. Say Erkomenos. Erkomenos, yes. That means the chosen one. Luke uses that precisely, too, to say that this is the guy. He is the one. Erkomenos. And the full phrase from, uh, from the Greek is eulogomenos ho erkomenos ho basileus. Blessed is the coming one, the king. Blessed is the coming one, the king. But there's another place where Luke also uses erkomenos. And if you look back to Luke chapter 7, you find this very dark moment for John the Baptist, where John is locked away in the prison, locked away under the rule of King Herod, and John knows he is wait, awaiting his death. And John asks the question, are you the Erkomenos? Are you the Erkomenos? Are you the chosen one, the one we've been waiting for? And now the answer is given. Yes, Jesus is the chosen one. He is the chosen one, the coming one, the king, the Erkomenos. And Luke stitches those two together. So Jesus is presented as a king. He is also presented as a rabbi or a teacher. That one's probably more familiar to us. We see that one throughout the gospel accounts in many ways. And here are these miracles that have been performed. All different types of ones. Blind people are healed. A man with a withered hand. We, we know of a widow. Luke gives the account of a widow whose son dies and Jesus resuscitates him, brings him back to life. We see these miracles again and again and again. And the disciples walk through this process with him. And the disciples, some of the miracles have to do with the simple things of even feeding the hungry. That becomes important. Luke really likes the narratives that take place around a table, around a meal, because he uses that setting nine different times throughout his gospel to show Jesus in an intimate setting. Other than a marriage relationship, that idea of sharing a meal in that culture was the most personal, close, an intimate thing you could do. And again, nine different times Luke, Luke unpacks that and sets Jesus in that environment. But here, with all of this happening, there's still confusion remaining. The disciples still aren't getting it. The disciples are still missing it. The religious rulers have missed it again and again and again. And now it almost looks as if they're starting to understand. Here is this triumphal entry. Maybe they are getting it. Maybe they are able to put the pieces together. Well, Jesus is also then presented by Luke as a prophet. Jesus uh, talks about that, and Dennis read for us from verse, um, whoops, I'm jumping ahead there. 
uh, Luke 21. So you go back a chapter and look at what Jesus says in Luke 21, 5 through 28. He says, the time is coming when these things, the temple will be completely demolished. So imagine, Jesus is walking into the temple courts, this beautiful building, and for us today, it might be similar to walking up the steps of the Supreme Court building. Here's this magnificent building. Now, with our architectural skills in the 21st century, eh, maybe not so impressive, but if you can only imagine one and two-story structures, and then here is this temple, this beautiful ornate temple being built, the, the hub of the culture, the hub of the society, the hub of Jerusalem right there, and they walk into those temp that temple area, and Jesus says to them, this thing is going to be demolished and not a stone is going to be left on top of another. What? What's, what's going on? And Jesus is trying to not only make a metaphor, but he's talking about that diaspora moment in, in 70 AD where the temple is destroyed by the Roman rulers. And if you've ever been to Israel, you've probably seen pictures of the Wailing Wall. Well, the Wailing Wall is only a small part of the foundation that is left over. And then on top of that would have been where uh, Solomon's temple, or Herod's, the temple that was built, rather, not Solomon, uh, it would have been during King Herod's reign, where that temple was built up on top, and that wall is all that's remaining now. But if you go underground, you can actually take a tour and walk along the very base of that foundation. You're actually walking on things that are kind of like cobblestones that the archaeological experts say was the road was the sidewalk, the pathway that walked around the foundation of the temple. And there are stones that are there at that foundation that would span the width of this room. They're as big or bigger than a city bus. Ginormous, if that's a word. Huge stones. And here Jesus is predicting, he's, they're looking at this structure, the majesty, and Jesus is saying, the time is coming when all these things will be completely demolished. No stone will be left on top of another. I'm sure the disciples were wondering, what's going on? What's he talking about? And now as we look back through history, we see that it was a physical and a metaphorical representation. Now here's the one I jumped to, Luke 22:15. Jesus says, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you, before my suffering begins. So here he's even pointing in that Passover process. He's, he's partaking in the first communion. He's communing with his disciples and, and sharing the cup and breaking the bread with them and saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm eager to do this. I've looking, been looking forward to this before my suffering begins. And then he goes on, for the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled. Quote, he was counted among the rebels. Now, Jesus here is quoting Isaiah 53, 12. If you were to go through, and in fact, I would encourage you today, after church council, sit down with Isaiah 53. It's not 71 verses long, thank goodness. It's probably only, I think it's 13 or 14 verses long. But sit down with Isaiah 53 and a little piece of scratch paper and go through and make a little check mark for every prophecy that is listed there that Jesus fulfilled through his death and his resurrection. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful chapter. Uh, it's probably one of my favorites out of the whole Old Testament. But here you see again and again the prophecies fulfilled of who Jesus was 
and the different beautiful images of the fact that he was going to die and restore the kingdom. Now, some folks, the skeptics, would say, yeah, 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 but those Jews, those Christians, went back and rewrote Isaiah because they wanted to make everything line up. Well, I hate to disappoint the skeptics, but there are copies of the scroll of Isaiah that archaeologists predate 200 years before Jesus was even born. So 200 years before Jesus was even on the planet, there's a scroll that has those words in it, those prophecies. So unless you can travel back in time 200 years, there's a pretty good chance that those prophecies were fulfilled uh, in, in what Jesus did. So Jesus is presented as a prophet, intercessor. He's also presented as an intercessor. But he's done this by his own actions. Jesus is representing himself as an intercessor. And in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, 31, he says, I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. You know what Jesus is doing right now for you and I? He's interceding for us. That your faith may not fail. He's standing before the Father and saying, Father, Forgive them. He's going through those same things as, as an intercessor that you would see him uh, pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And tonight we're going we're gonna to unpack that, John chapter 17. And I didn't realize, and I, I apologize, church, here's this beautiful stained glass up behind us. When you turn around to leave worship today, look at that, that uh, stained glass of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. There it is, right there. He's interceding on our behalf. So come tonight at 6 o'clock and and uh, hear what, what Jesus, the beautiful prayer of John 17. If you don't get to come to worship tonight, sit down and read John 17 and just see that Jesus pour his heart out in prayer as an intercessor. He goes on in Luke 22:42, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering from me. Yet I want your will to be done and not mine. How many times have we prayed that? We pray that every Sunday. Every Sunday. Thy kingdom come, what? Thy will be done. Exactly. Yeah. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Those are Jesus' words now, as he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, trying to keep his disciples awake, trying to get them to look past the suffering and the grief that they might be wondering about. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Even though Jesus knew what was coming. Jesus is also represented as a criminal. But it's interesting who represents him as a criminal. Towards the end of the chapter, chapter 22, we see him represented as a criminal by, you'd think it would be by Pilate or by King Herod. Mm -mm. Jesus goes before Pilate, and what does Pilate say? I find nothing wrong with this man. I find no fault in him. So Pilate ships him off to King Herod, the pagan king who's probably having an orgy or a drunken party or something over at his, at his uh, castle, like he did all the time. And all they did with Jesus was beat him and mock him and make fun of him, I say all. But he didn't call him a criminal and said, I don't know what to do with this guy, send him back to Pilate. Those two pagan kings didn't call Jesus a criminal. Who did? The crowd and the Jews, uh, the religious leaders. They were the ones who, just a few days ago, had said, Erkomenos, you are the chosen one. Blessings on the chosen one, the coming king. 
And now they're calling him a criminal. And it's by their words, the words of the angry mob, that Pilate is swayed and gives in and helps Jesus move even closer to his death. So we see this triumph, this triumphal entry that we celebrated with the, with the kids this morning. That was really fun. We should do that more often. We've got to come up with some more excuses to woohoo, walk around church and praise the Lord like that. But we move from that triumph and that celebration and that hope to tragedy. To Good Friday. To, to this longing and this absence and this, this tearing apart that is hard to understand. So look back through Luke 22. Now we're going to look in the mirror. We've looked at what Luke has to say. We've looked at what the Lord has to say through the gospel account. But now look in the mirror. And according to our testimony, yours and mine, who is this Jesus? How is he presented today by how we live our lives and by what we do? And why should the world, the rest of the world, even care about him? Do we present Jesus as this empty ritual as we began the chapter, chapter 22, with Jesus around the table, sharing the first communion with his disciples? Do we share Jesus with this empty ritual, or do we represent Jesus as, as this empty ritual that we don't even understand? Or do we really know that this is the most close and the most intimate moment that we get to have with our Lord? That Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, and we call it communion. Communion. That there is a closeness and a transformation that can happen in that moment that is available to all. It is a means of grace that whether you're part of our church or not, you are welcome at this table. That God loves you and he's made a way for you. But if we don't, aren't careful, we turn it into an empty ritual and we represent Jesus as something that he is not. Or what about those disciples that fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are we allowing ourselves to carry our griefs and our sorrows, and to become fatigued, worn out, exhausted by those things that we continue to carry when Jesus is saying, put them at the feet of the cross. Come follow me. Lay your burdens down. All those phrases that we can remember. Galatians 5.1 says that it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Then why are we walking around with the guilt and the condemnation and the burden that is wearing us out? How are we representing Jesus? Or are we angrily attacking others in the same way that Peter wielded that sword in the Garden of Gethsemane? Are we angrily attacking others, ready to defend ourselves and our own interests? Forgetting that our real calling is to be agents of grace and peace. Brothers and sisters, there are enough swords in this world. There are enough deep wounds there are already enough scars. We don't need to add to it. Let's be agents of grace and peace because if we're not, if we're constantly wielding that sword, how are we presenting Jesus to the world? Or are we denying him? I cannot imagine when it says, the, the text today said, Peter wept bitterly. I cannot imagine what Peter was feeling when he made, made eye contact with Jesus after denying him 
the third time. Standing around that fire three times saying, I don't know him. To the point of lying repeatedly that that is not the Jesus who I have devoted the last three years of my life to. Man, is that me? Is that who I am? When Jesus is represented to the world, do I say, I don't know him? Not me. I have to ask that question. So why observe Holy Week? Why go through this whole process? There are a lot of churches that won't do it. In fact, there's probably some of you that are kind of, I wish we didn't have to do church three or four or five times this week. (laughs) Why observe Holy Week? Why is this important? How do we represent Jesus? It's not just showing up here on on, uh, Thursday and Friday and then again on Sunday. Although I hope you do. There's more to it than that. How are you representing Jesus throughout this Holy Week? And why celebrate Easter? Why does Easter matter? Does it matter because that's what mom and dad always did? They always took me to church on Easter Sunday. Or does it matter because that's what the culture says is important? That's what you do on Easter. You go to church and you hunt for Easter eggs and you eat too much chocolate. That's what we do. But why? Why Easter? How do you express to others that Easter matters? And how do you re-present Jesus for who he truly is when the resurrection story is told. Now, I could try to finish that and answer those questions in my own words, but I'm going to let Paul do it. I'm going to let Paul do it from Philippians 3, 7 through 11. It's one of my favorite chunks of scripture right here. So Paul starts out the third chapter of Philippians, and he goes through and says, here's all the good stuff that I've done. I have been an A-plus Jew, and I've, been all, I've done all these things, and I've followed the law, and I've done all these great things but here's where he turns the corner and says, I now consider all of that worthless because of what Jesus Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord. Hmm. And then jumping ahead to verse 10, I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Don't we all want that? Amen. But, listen to this, I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death so that, one way or another, I will experience the resurrection of the dead. Those are connected, brothers and sisters. You can't have one without the other. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that I may experience the full resurrection of the dead that same resurrection that Jesus went through, so that you can't get to Easter without Good Friday, without Monday, Thursday. So Jesus asks us to walk with him this week. Walk with him. Find a way to make this week different than all the other weeks. And whether that's lived out in the life of your relationship at home, or with your neighbors, excuse me, Whatever that looks like, find a way to make Holy Week, Holy Week. And walk with Jesus through that time of suffering. Understand and know, just like Paul, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but that I also may know his suffering so that I can fully understand what it means when we celebrate Easter. Jesus' final words here for us today. These aren't his final words. These are our final words today. 
from Jesus. He said this to his disciples, You have stayed with me in my time of trial. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Amen? So we can walk together this week. Let's not skip to Easter, but let's walk and make sure that we are re-presenting this Jesus for who he truly is so that the world can understand what Easter is all about. Thanks be to God.